This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. We are recording this on Thursday the 7th July with Richard Howarth. Richard is a retired hedge fund manager who now lives in Switzerland, skiing in the winter, climbing in the summer and trading his own book. Richard was an integral member of the Bank of New York Mellon Insight Market Neutral Fund, which at its height ran over 3 billion sterling in UK equities between 2005 and 2016. Richard, good morning. Morning, Nick. How's, how is the weather in sunny, I guess, Switzerland? Yeah, uh, it's it's a beautiful day, but um, the last week or so, it's it's a little turbulent, actually, a bit like markets. So um, the interesting thing about the weather over here is normally it only rains for a relatively short periods of time. So it's thundery and blustery when it's poor and then the sun comes out afterwards. So uh, it's never too long before we have some good weather. Hopefully, just like the markets, you're not wrong. So let's shall, shall we start? Should we start with a bit of background? How did you how did you find yourself to to work in finance? Um, so my my route in was that I I fired off a load of letters to um, the stockbrokers of Manchester back in 1994, um, and one of them came back with a. A positive response, and I was invited. Was that, to so that sounds interview. like that was a surprise. <laughs> well, everybody at the time was um, was discouraging and negative about my prospects at getting into the industry, and I got invited for an interview at Capel Cure Myers, and then through various little transactions, this ended up um, brewing Dolphin. So I spent seven years in private client portfolio management um, and I was lucky that the people that I work with um, encouraged me to take the fund management exams so at the time it was the IIMR um, rather than the more traditional route in that in that field to do the stock exchange exams and so um, I did quite well at them and you know, so you're up against Mercury and Co. Yeah, and um, and I I uh, won a prize. Um, and at that age, it it means nothing, yeah. But at that age, it looks good on the CV. Um, and then um, I did quite well um, in private client broking and was made a. I was a pretty young to be made director at the age of 29. And then in 2001. Um, I got approached by a headhunter and that led to a role at Clerical Medical, which again through through MA became Insight. Yeah. And 
And in 2005, we, we launched the Absolute Return products, which, uh, you I mean, know, which some... enjoyed a, a, a good decade, let's say. I mean, there were some very, you know, now very well-known farm managers that, that worked at Clerical with you. So, um, uh, I think wherever you are, you, you don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. And, um, and I definitely wasn't the smartest guy in the room, anything but when I, you know, when I joined the industry, um, I thought I was pretty smart by the late 90s. And, um, and then in the sort of, you know, my first bear market, so as 2000 rolled over, I started to realise I wasn't quite as smart as I thought I was. And then I joined Clerical Medical and, um, and that was like a shock to the system because you 20, I mean, at the time, by the time I joined, I was 31. Um, so I was quite late by traditional standards to arrive in the city. And especially late to suddenly find yourself in a room with 20 other fund managers and, and you at the bottom of the ladder. And everybody seems to behave differently. The things I knew, they weren't irrelevant. They just were different. And so, um, and everyone in the room had, had come from a, you know, a conventional, uh, Oxbridge type background. And so it was an intimidating environment to suddenly find yourself in and you've got to learn and adapt. Um, and, but actually it's, it's the best thing that can happen to you because, um, you don't want to be the smartest guy because you've got no one to learn from. And, and then it's up to you and you just yep. got to put that, put the hard yards in really. Um, it took time. But it, it came good for me, so yeah, I can't complain. And then, how many of you were working on the market neutral funds? Of you know, it's a... I mean, we launched them in different markets. So basically, uh, uh, you know, almost like the best of the best. So people who were running focus portfolios in equities or uh, other asset classes at the time were asked to come up with an absolute return solution for insight and so whether it was emerging market debt or european equities or emerging market equities uk equities everybody had a go and then we traded paper for a year uh to kind of prove whatever strategy you'd come up with and then we launched in 2005 um ours ours sort of did a little better um the main thing that we learned on that journey actually is that um the market really values consistency and so we we had a a fun strategy that was rarely uh experiencing severe drawdown and so <clears throat> the consistency of return is what started to attract uh investors into it and then we had a a really good 2008 and because everybody else did so poorly in 2008 we actually uh, we ranked quite high. The fund received a lot of attention. Our main competitors did not do so well. And, and that really served as the catalyst for growth where, you know, in the years that followed 2009, 10, 11, the assets ballooned and um, 
And that became a really successful business, principally on the back of um, having the right strategy into 2008 and what happened there. So volatility spiked through the roof and, you know, and, and our fund returns remained stable and positive at a time when most people's had, uh, had become sort of negative and very volatile. So you had a very successful sort of 11, 11 years there and decided to, to go and do something else in, in sort of 2016. But you know, what are your sort of most memorable or enjoyable parts of, of working in the city? Yeah. Apart from meeting me, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the highlight. Or maybe maybe our meeting with uh, one disco or... I mean, success. Success is, uh, is like a drug. And so... Um, especially when everyone around you is doing poorly. So 2008 was fantastic for us. Um, but we also managed the transition really well um, in 2009. And so these things are great, yeah? And you think you're the bee's knees, your chest is puffed out, and not just in your own office, but in the city, and you're working for a good firm and you're doing well. So these are, these are great times. But now when I look back, um, I don't miss the success. I definitely don't miss the failure and there's definitely always some failure along the way. So the trouble with fund management is that uh, most of the time you're not quite doing as well as you would hope or your investors hope or people internally hope. And this is this is the sort of the real crux of your role in a way is managing that situation. So I, I don't miss that, but I do miss all the people. And and the highlight really is that you you meet all these fantastic people from different walks of life who are also experiencing, you know, a successful period in their own life. So whether they're CEOs of a company or whether they're just doing well like you in broking or you're all kind of enjoying it together. And uh, it's just it's fantastic at that point in life, really. But, um, you know, if you watch. We watched Wall Street 2 together, yeah. Yeah. And so so in Wall Street 2, they asked the question, you know, and it's it's what is your number, yeah? How much is enough? And and we laughed at the time. And because I can't remember who the lead is, but he turned around and he said, My number's more. And we thought this is great, yeah. My number's more too. Exactly. And My number's everyone's more. Everyone's yeah. number's more, isn't it? We all want more. And and we do, but the thing is, is it is it more capital, more money, more responsibility, um, all these things that go with the more, or is the thing that you really want more time, yeah, more time to do the things that you actually want to do, and and this is the thing that slowly started to dawn on me in 2016 is that um, I'm mid 40s and the things that I most wanted to do. I was running out of time and so I really wanted more because 55 to 65 is not a great period to start focusing on activities like skiing and climbing because your body is starting to give up on you. Um, And so I guess for me it was just the realisation that actually you get to a stage where enough is enough and you want to focus on different aspects of your life And, and I guess also, the avenue for growth was richer 
pursuing other interests than simply accumulating more and more capital that all you're really going to do um, is give it away to somebody at the end of your life. And so um, so that's kind of where I, I found myself um, wanting to do something different. And then once you've made that step, um, you start to see a different way of life, basically, where you you spend less money, you need less money, um, and you get to focus more on the things that you actually want to do with your time. So you got off the hamster wheel really, right? I got off the hamster wheel. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And I can't believe when we're doing the prep for this that you reminded me it's been six years since since you left Insights. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of skiing and climbing in six years. It is. It's also two summers of complete inactivity through injury, um, which in a way kind of endorses the view that you are going to get these injuries and things. And um, like financial markets, things never quite go to plan. Um, and therefore, you need some room. You need some room to, you know, if you want to um, improve, then you have to take account of the fact that you're not always going to be available. Um, and it, it's not just things that happen to you. It can be, you know, family situations. It can be COVID. It can be all sorts of things. Um, but, you you know, the one, you will run out of time, basically. Um, and that that is something that we all live with. And so for some people, it's not important. And for me, it was. And then... Um, and now I just kind of uh, manage my life differently, basically, um, which I guess is, you know, we'll come to how you think about investments. But it, it means that you start to think about investments differently as well. The big the big thing for me is that you just you needed less money than you would think. It's what I discovered, especially when you are where you need to be already. Um, so if you take away the travel, then um everything I need is on my doorstep and it's pretty much free you know whereas in the UK most people would think of going you know going skiing they might be going heli skiing um you know this is it's an expensive thing to do but it's free for me um and I, I capture all the good days in the year um, yes, so how many how many uh, how many days a year would you ski in a season so, it's, I mean, the, the benchmark for someone who lives here is, is, is kind of like 100 days a year. So I kind of ski 100 days a year. I climb 100 days a year. The real, the real key is that you don't know when the good days are going to come along. And, and I'm here for them when they do. And so you capture them. And so you manage to, even in a poor season, you harvest all the good, good days. Um, even if you spend 10,000 on a heli trip out to Revelstoke or somewhere in Canada, you're not guaranteed, you're going to get two or three down days in your seven. And so, you know, you're, you're lucky, even if you book 10 days, you're probably lucky if you ski six. And um, it's a completely different experience, basically. You're not, you, you know, the other factor is just your general level of fitness. So, um, it's only when you live here that you realise how much fitter and stronger you are to enjoy those days when they're gone yeah. um, than someone who's jumped on a plane from sea level and come out here. And yeah. I'm not sure I have a better time than they do. 
<laughs> it's a different experience and it was something I wanted it, I felt strongly about it and so I think my life is richer for having done it um I, I wouldn't I couldn't hand on heart tell you I'll do it for the rest of my life but I've definitely enjoyed doing it so far so and then and then I get to the great thing about having a, a wonderful education within the stock market is it's still something you can continue to be very involved in from even from Switzerland yeah, so most days I would say, um, <laughs> you know, the unspoken truth of fund management is that you can do most of it in the first two or three hours of the day. How much or how little extra work you do is really down to you. And, you know, we all know that hard work is a driver of success and so is luck and um and so, yeah, young fund managers, they work very hard because they're learning. But actually, um, the older and the wiser um, can often do most of the job in the first few hours of the day, which I still do. Um, so you read through the RNSs. You don't read them all. You definitely miss being forced to read some of the ones that you wouldn't bother with because you're meeting management or or whatever. Um, but actually, in the period since I left, it's got a lot easier, I would say, to to get free input from pretty credible sources. So the whole MIFID thing, it kind of um, polarised the industry. The banks have sort of shut up shop and you can't really get access to um, timely product. But you can, what you can do is you can get it two or three weeks later. And for the private investor, that doesn't make too much difference, actually. When I first started my uh, on the buy side, my CIO would only accept uh, broker recommendations by letter. Obviously, it shows my age, but that yeah. was on account of the fact that if you thought that if if you thought if you thought as the broker, the idea was good enough, you took the time to write him a letter and it was worth three days in the post and it was still a good idea, then then timing didn't really matter. And I think I still think that's right. I think um, I think maybe once or twice a year, most of us get real lucky and we we nail something. Um, but it doesn't happen that often. Most of the time you're a bit early, mainly for, for me, I'd say I'm normally a bit early, sometimes horribly early. Getting information late is it's not uh it's not a huge disadvantage, actually. Um, being able to make quick decisions, I think, or being able to make decisions and then accept the decision that you've made, I think is an important feature of being involved in investment markets, sort of letting go of the decision that you've made and then just making decisions going forward. Um, but in terms of access to information and, you know, getting hold of research. So new stocks, IPOs, that type of thing, it, it takes longer um in the private investor field to to get access to the type of information that you would like um obviously you've got the listing document once it's it's actually listed but, yeah um, but generally speaking you get a lot of access to various people there's always somebody who's either changed funds and so they're effectively looking to raise money or they're looking to you know, increase their media presence. And so they're giving free access to something through podcasts, um, 
you know, they're getting invited onto things like macro voices and you're gaining their views and it just helps you to build a picture of what's going on. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So so how do you see the market? I mean, it's been a turbulent couple of couple of months. What's your what's your current positioning? Oh, my positioning. Uh, well. I guess I guess before you before you think about what I'm looking to do, you, you've got to ask yourself what you're looking to achieve. And so I, I don't really care what the market return is. Um, I'm more sensitive to losses than um, certainly than a long only fund manager would be. Um, so I, I always hold a decent slug of cash. Um, and really, I'm looking to generate a positive return after my living expenses. So my view on the market overall is a lot better today than it was 12 months ago, because um, the last, you know, the, the risk I'm most sensitive to is a major drawdown in the market. So now that we're in a, a decent drawdown, um, you know, the, the future prospects for equity investment are a lot better today than they were 12 months ago. I suspect they're going to get better still. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it's difficult to know exactly how things pan out, um, obviously. At the moment, the Fed has still got the taps turned off. Um, and I find it difficult to to get really positive um, about the market as a whole until um, they pivot and possibly even reverse so obviously there's a bit of news out yesterday that uh, I mean the reading through the the FMCO minutes but um do you think we get a pivot and what do well, you think he's saying not so I think I think in terms of the short term I think what the market's looking for is so first of all you've got this next decision and will it be 75 or 50 and if it's 50 the market is going to assume that he is temporarily done even if he says he's not and if it's 75, he might say he's temporarily done. Yeah. And I think that gives um, gives the market some breathing space. So if you look back at um, the two, 2007 A experience or you look at the 2000 experience, um, normally after a fall of 20% plus in the S&P, you see a rally. And the rally can be anything between half and 100% of the previous fall. And so that opens up the potential for the S&P to rally higher than 4,000. I suspect that, uh, that that is your opportunity to adjust your portfolio to maybe kick some stuff out that you wish you didn't hold anymore. Um, because I still think that, you know, the most likely uh, turn of events is a recession um, next year. And and then it's just about, you know, we're going to get into all this U, Bath, V, L kind of yeah. scenario yeah. analysis, yeah, which is what they're really saying is how bad a recession is it going to be? Um, my suspicion is it's it's not going to be pleasant for asset owners, but it might be better than uh, better than you think for the real economy. Um, so not so bad for employment and wages. Um, so on the one hand, you could en envisage um, a shallow recession for average Joe, um, but a pretty nasty one for the asset owner. Um, 
nevertheless, even taking that on board, um, if we follow the path of, you know, either either 2008 or or the 2000, then the S&P is going to bottom somewhere around 2425. Um, and the good thing about that is, so looking forward from then, uh, things look fantastic. Um, it won't be one way, it won't be linear, it, but it will be directionally positive. And you can invest without having, um, you know, a total collapse hanging over your head, um, which we pretty much have. Like the FTSE has made very little progress since I left. Made very little progress since yeah. I left. I know that in America things have been. Maybe a lot it's more because you left. Put in. Maybe, Maybe it's, it's because, because I left. I think it, it's definitely got something to do with it, hasn't it? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think. So it's been really difficult. Um, the virus made things even more complicated because this, where we're at now, was kind of unfolding in 2018. Yeah, and then the virus came along and, you know, we we just got this really unusual period and the US market went completely nuts. Um, so all of that is now, you know, we're exercising the demon and which I think is pretty positive, but it's going to be a bit nasty for for a short while um and so so i guess you can you know so how do you invest in against that backdrop and for me um i want to invest in things that um i can commit to and the most important thing is that i don't lose my bottle and sell at the bottom um you know we're, we'd all love to think that we won't lose money but inevi inevitably um, most of your investments experience a period where things aren't going well. And, and my anchor is is the people. And yeah. so I look for management that I can back or shareholders that I can back or a chairman that I can back. Um, something that keeps you in when everything else is telling you to panic. Um, because whilst it's, it's depressing... Um, to lose money, it's it's much much worse if you you know if you jump out at the wrong point, and so um, so the the key the kind of the principal part or the core part of my portfolio, which is normally fifty sixty percent, is is kind of centered around quite often turnaround focused investments. So cheap cheap stocks for whatever reason, but the anchor is normally around. The people that are involved in it so and that like i say it can be it can be management or shareholders and i guess they i mean that also falls i guess within the special situations bucket doesn't it in the way that there is a catalyst for change or hopefully in management management involvement in the business which which almost x's out the beta yeah so i i'm looking to uh defend or I was looking to defend myself against um, the market conditions that we find ourselves in now. Like I say, not necessarily to stop me losing money. Um, you know, I, I'm down 10% on the, the core portfolio. I, I don't want to sell these investments. Yeah. And so something has to keep me in. Um, and, you know, I actually think that, you know, several of them are the prospects are actually improving. 
um, despite the economy deteriorating against you. And, and I, I've kind of always done that, actually, is look for things that are sort of semi-agnostic to the economy and semi-agnostic to, um, to the market, which some people would say is, you know, value investing. Some people would say special sips. Some yeah. people would pigeonhole it, turn around. Yeah. They're kind of, they're, they're all a little bit similar in a way. But. I mean, it'd be remiss of me not to ask for a couple of names if you want to share them, but I obviously fully, fully understand if you don't. Well, um, I mean, in, in March 20, apparently everybody except me knew it was the bottom but i didn't and and i spend a couple of hours a day listening to podcasts and i don't remember anybody saying it was the bottom most people some people did say they covered their shorts um by september virtually everybody knew it was the bottom in march in March, everybody was saying we we're going to test the lows, and we never did. We just went yeah. up in a straight line. Yeah. And obviously, it was a really unusual Fed policy that served as the catalyst. Nevertheless, um, so in, in this kind of March 20 period, I, I kind of pat myself on the back and say, yeah, I bought BT when they cut the dividend. And and in a way, it's like this. Um, it, it looks like a, a great decision. Yeah, you got in a, a great level. But the reality is I could have bought anything. And I would have made I would have made money buying anything, but um, for whatever reason, I, I did buy PT, and I, I bought it because um, even though they cut the dividend, they presented a pathway to returning to the current dividend, which is sort of seven point seven. Um, and so, on buying it, it was around a pound, so it's yielding seven and a half percent. And I thought, well, five is a good number. And so at five, it's 150, so made decent money. And and I can live off five. So I'm kind of happy, you know, if, if I get five with little downside risk, then I, I can, that's enough for me. And so um, I like Janssen and I think he's doing, he's doing good things. And I've got kind of lucky with, um, you know, this chap building a big stake in the company. Yes. There's an M&A positive now and there's yeah. a pension positive that dissipate. But there's lots of good things going on um, at BT, but it's traditionally defensive. Um, and so, um, you know, so that was a good decision. Um, more recently, a bloody awful decision was uh, similar. I bought Hostmore and I just, I guess uh, it's dramatically underperformed the sector and the sector's been super poor. The timing was horrendous, but I did like, you know, I like the people that were involved. I kind of bought back in. I had owned it as Electra and I sold all the stock when they announced the demerger <clears throat> because it wasn't the exit that I was looking for. And then when they announced the demerger, the shares were, were weak. Um, understandably weak actually because people start to um you know it's a, a relatively small part of a lot of people's portfolios just the um, listeners uh, Hostmore owns the tgi fridays franchise in in the yeah. uk but it, i mean it's trading on like two three times at the moment so it's it's insanely cheap but it just goes to show that valuation doesn't really matter when you know all the flow is sell is sell side i mean that's too great it's great sort of examples and then obviously inflation has been 
a focus for a lot of people and and people trying to maybe invest ahead of it or or, or, or be part of it what's your what's your view on inflation is that something that we need to be very concerned about or not so concerned about well on the one hand inflation for me for you you're you're still getting paid a fortune in the if only, if great only. institution that is the city of london um i i don't have an income and so inflation is is my great risk in a way so being employed and effectively having a salary that, although not formally, informally is indexed to RPI or inflation, is um, is a great defence. And then every commentator will tell you that um, cash is trash and cash is losing you money because yeah. of inflation, which is, to me, ludicrous because... Um, you know, most people have a 60-40 portfolio or whatever. Well, both bonds and equities are down significantly this year. So there is nothing trash about cash at the moment. But the, you know, the, the big thing about inflation is um, what is your own inflation? So what is the inflation that you are exposed to? If you own your own house and you've paid off your mortgage, you couldn't care less about house price inflation. Ditto car fuel well it depends on how many miles you drive and so yes there is a headline inflation rate and it's scary if your capital is really losing its purchasing power at 10 percent per annum then that's a, a scary thought in terms of managing um one's retirement but i suspect that my inflation rate is nothing like that and um you know, and the other the other part of it is that you can choose how you how you spend your money. So if you spend it wisely, then you're less exposed to um, than inflation. But um, overall, it, it's it's just a it's a massive win for the young because yeah. they're at a stage in their career where their salaries are, uh, are rising anyway. So you know they they set off on a starting salary in the city and they expect to double it within five years. Well. Um, so their income is going to double, their borrowing capacity is going to double, and the assets that they want to buy are likely going to be more attractively priced, um, certainly in real terms. So, you know, maybe house prices don't go anywhere for five years. Um, their borrowing capacity rises and they're able to get on the ladder. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so I think it's pretty positive for young people. Um, young people will do quite well out of this recession, I think, actually, ironically. But... Um, We'll see. That's a very upbeat note. As many of my regular listeners will know, I'd like to close with a, a few final questions. We'll take one one uh, at a time. But Richard, your greatest inspiration or, or mentor? Holy. Um, I mean, I, I've worked with some great people um, who have had an influence on my career. But uh, if it wasn't for... Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko. I don't think I'd have set out on the journey I did. And so in terms of inspiring me to be involved in in the city, in finance, in equities, um, that movie played a, a big role in my life. So um, so I would say, I, you know, we all want to be Gordon Gecko, don't we? Of Not course. Not many of us get to be Gordon Gecko, yeah? So 
Well, that's okay. I think as you as you get a bit older, you realise that it's not all perfect being Gordon, and being Gordon comes with some cost too. Um, I actually just wanted a shot at being yeah. Bud Fox. So yeah. Bud Fox wanted a shot at being Gordon Gecko, and I just wanted a shot to be Bud Fox. So that, I got a shot, and I made a success of it. So, um, so I say Bud Fox was the and Buddy Buddy Fox is your, uh, Fox, is, your yeah. is your mentor. That's awesome. Uh, and then a book that has inspired you. A favourite book? It's impossible, yeah. It's I know, book. I know. I mean, I know. I mean, you do read a lot, so. But it's it's also circumstantial. You go through periods in your life when you're reading different authors. Um, I don't know, Twenty years ago, I had a period of reading John Irving. He wrote things yeah. like The Cider House Rules and Prefer Owen Meany. I thought, I thought I would always answer this question with one of one of those books or um financy books i mean all the financy books are great but there's no secret there is there is no secret code you know the secret code is inside you ultimately it's uh if you want to be a fund manager nick searle has to understand nick searle and so from that aspect a book like um the monkey sold his ferrari is really good because yeah. it's it's getting you to look at you and understand yourself and how you make decisions and see if you can switch off some of the negative biases that you have. Um, and then more traditional. I mean, Atlas Shrugged, I loved. Do you know, I wrote, do you know, I wrote it here because if you weren't going to, if you weren't going to mention it, I was going to ask. <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. The book I feel most like reading again at the moment is Catch 22. I think, um, I think it's almost like a forerunner for George Soros's kind of re reflexivity in a way that the way we think and the decisions we make actually affect the events that we're trying to manage. And yeah. Catch-22 is sort of a similar idea in a way. And I, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like picking that book up and reading it again, which is maybe, unusual. Maybe, I, don't, I don't like to read books twice often. But, uh, exactly. Um, maybe Jerome Powell should have another go at Catch-22. Yeah, maybe you should. Yeah, maybe we should all read Catch Twenty Two again. I'm in the mood to read Catch Twenty Two. Um, and then finally, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career if they wanted to follow in your footsteps? Oh well, well, don't follow in my footsteps. I mean, do something more conventional. Um, what advice would I give? Um, if you find yourself in a room and you think you're the smartest guy, then you need to be in a different room. Um, you need to surround yourself with people that you can learn from, who you respect and you look up to. And and so wherever you are, when you leave, when you're setting out and you leave uni, um, you know, you, you need to look around the room and think, yeah, I, I want to I want to follow these guys. I want to learn from them. And and so for me, that's the most important thing. That makes a lot of sense. And then if listeners want to get in touch, what's the what's the best way to get in touch with you? Oh, um, you asked me my Twitter feed, didn't you? I can't remember it. <laughs> that's you all right. I, I, so it's richard.howarthatme.com. It's really easy. Fine. So if you, if you know my name, it's richard.howarthatme.com. Yeah. Fine. Uh, Fine. And it's super, it's super easy to remember. Perfect. Uh, Richard, this has been most enjoyable. It's great to see you as an old friend. Thank you very much for your time. Great to see you too, my friend. Great to see you. <laughs>